Welcome to Ask of Expert, helping business owners, managers, and professionals thrive in the world of modern work. Here's Polly Craig. Well, hello again, and thank you for joining us. Today's topic has generated a lot of buzz across borders and in companies of all shapes and sizes. As a business owner, what's your immediate reaction when the subject of data security comes up? Research suggests you may really feel a sense of unease. Despite a massive increase in data breaches over the past two years, a report by information security company Shreddit reveals that unfortunately more than half of business leaders still do not have an incident response plan in place. If there's anything that should keep business owners up at night, this is it. As Forbes states, a business's second most valuable asset, which falls only behind their people, is the data we rely on for seemingly everything. Many private business owners may think, why would this happen to my business? It's really only for the big companies or companies that people may know of. But that's not the fact. You're not alone. Many feel their businesses are too small or uninteresting to attract the attention of hackers. But cybersecurity experts will agree. It's not a case of if a business will be attacked, it's when. And the results, if unprepared, can be devastating. Today's episode, we're taking a deep dive into cybersecurity, data protection, and practical steps for you to prepare and manage a potential security incident. Here to help us navigate this complex topic is business lawyer Andrew Buck. Andrew represents private and public businesses ranging in size with guidance surrounding e-commerce, privacy, data protection, access to information, anti-spam law, compliance, and much more. He's a frequent speaker and media commentator on privacy and data protection matters. Joining us from Pitt Law in Winnipeg is Andrew Buck. Welcome to the show, Andrew. We're really excited to have you here. Hi, Polly. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we have a lot to talk about. This is, you know, every conversation that I've been around the dinner table recently has been about data security and personal experience and actually having things happen that they are either the recipient of or have people close to them that have been suffering from this. So let's just start, you know, isn't it amazing that more than 50% of businesses have either already experienced a privacy breach? And what does that all encompass? Like when we think privacy, sometimes we think, well, it's just data, but it's not, is it? No, I, when you, you go to the laws, as we often do as lawyers, what we look at is, well, what does the law say is a privacy breach? And so I think, of course, the specific laws your business might be subject to could vary, but there's a general consensus. And the language that's used is unauthorized use or access to personal information. That's what privacy laws are concerned about. It's not necessarily that someone has misused information, but even accessing it. And privacy laws are are interested in personal information. And so when we talk about data security incidents, that can include things that don't encompass personal information, that don't specifically say, hey, here's Andrew and here's something about Andrew. But it might be something about Andrew's business. And that could be something that's important as well. So You're quite right. When we talk about all-encompassing, there's many different aspects and and angles to this. And really getting a handle on top of your information flows, I think first and foremost, is the best thing that a business can do to prepare for the inevitable. So let's just unpack that a little bit because is there sort of table stakes and here are the basic things that a business of any size, it doesn't matter if you're a sole proprietor, 
you still have a computer plugged into the wall that's connected to the internet. What are the basic things that people should have as part of their planning for an eventual breach? It's a great question because like many things, if you look at it from 30,000 feet, it could be completely overwhelming. So when you get a little bit more granular conceptually, the two ways that I like to look at it would be number one, what can we do proactively? But then number two, what do we do reactively? And so right. on so the let's proactive start with side, proactive there, proactive, yeah. that's the happy place. That's where we like to be. It isn't <laughs> where we always are, but that's where we like to be. And I think one of the things that is essential is, as I mentioned off the top, the concept of information flows. And what I mean by that is, Oftentimes, when I get a call from someone who has had or thinks they've had a data security incident, the first thing that I want to know is what's happened, what's leaked out. And if you don't have a solid handle on your assets that are in your system, it's very hard to answer that question. And so it's a bad feeling when I ask the question and you just hear sort of a pause. And the person realizes, I don't even know what I have, because how can you possibly understand the extent of the problem if you don't know what information you had in the first place? So I think in terms of a really important practical step that can be taken proactively, inventory your information. It might not be widgets. It might not be reams of paper. It might not be other things that we can physically see, but having an inventory of all that data that you have on your system is just as important as you would for any other hard assets. So that's, I think, a very important part that everybody should be doing, and some of us do it better than others. So when you say assets, it's not just, you know, you always think of things that are tangible, but assets when it comes to security is other people's information, or perhaps it could even be information on your suppliers, employees, of course, any type of information. And where does this normally fall within an organization? Are there changes being made that there's actually somebody in charge of security? It really should start at the top. And when we talk about what the law and various regulators expect of our boards and our C-suite executives, it's not expected that you're going to be that person who knows all of the threat vectors and is on top of that and knows what the latest ransomware stats are. That's not what's expected, but rather it's the idea of raising the flag, being aware of the issue, exercising supervision and asking the right questions, knowing that you have someone in your team and, and preferably someone who's fairly senior tasked with asking those questions and building the particular plans that you need to do. And so to answer your question more directly, in most businesses, you'll have people who are specifically responsible for information systems or information technology, and they'll be the people who have the boots on the ground doing that actual work. Understanding that if we're in a small or medium-sized business, it may be that everybody's wearing the same hat. And in that case, then it would fall on you to either do that yourself or take appropriate steps that you can take in order to engage a third party to provide that assistance to you. So would one of the first steps then, you know, we're again, we're in the proactive mode here, is having an incident response plan. And can you share with us what are some typical incidences that would happen that would trigger, oh dear, we've got a problem? Yeah, absolutely. So that is a fantastic step because the last thing that you want is it's 4.30 on a Friday afternoon, you're heading out to the lake and all of a sudden your computers won't turn on. and 
you're asking yourself, what should I do? And if you're asking, what should I do? Because you don't know, because you don't have a plan, then you're already behind the eight ball. And so in terms of some of the incidents that might trigger that, there's the things that I think we can all think of. Hackers get into your system. They shut down your computers. You might have a situation where you've got a rogue actor. So you've got a disgruntled employee who is stealing information and selling it to competitors or others. But then there were things that I think are a little less obvious, like employee snooping. And that's really becoming a serious and significant issue for a lot of businesses out there. Employees who are looking at data that they don't need to in order to do whatever job it is they're doing. And it's not just in healthcare either. And so that could also be a situation where you need to trigger your plan because you've had, going back to what we talked about at the outset, unauthorized access, not just use, but access to information. So those would all be examples of of where you'd kick your incident response plan into action. So in that specific case, that would require some sort of proactive monitoring as well. So somebody looking at systems, looking for breaches. And my understanding is some of the data I read, you know, 22% of breaches do come from within. Oh, absolutely. And you can further classify that, break it down between the malignant ones where you've got people who are intentionally doing it, but then you've also got the employees who are unwitting victims of social engineering, the phishing attacks. And we should put a pin in that and get back to that because that's an important point. But to the topic at hand, absolutely. You need to be mindful of the fact that employees can be doing inside jobs, so to speak. And so that's where even if it's not an actual requirement of privacy law, where we typically see that is in the healthcare context, the idea of a record of user activity where you know who's looked at someone's medical records at a particular time. And when we see in the news incidents of people snooping, looking at records that they shouldn't have in a healthcare setting, that's how that gets exposed is because the system will flag that and automatically say, here's some unusual activity. That's really something we all can and probably should be doing in our systems because it gets into if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, does it make a sound? And maybe the answer is no, unless someone is around and then it's a very loud sound. So we need to make sure that we've got steps in place to anticipate and mitigate those things. We'll go back because I think you mentioned phishing and then, you know, I've even got a situation, you know, where emails are being sent. So rather than getting into those details, Why don't we just talk a little bit more about what should be included in an incident response plan? It's a great question. I think I like to break it down into different steps in the sequence, understanding that it's not necessarily a linear progression. And we'll see as we get into it why that is. But the first step is contain. You need to shut off the tap. The first and foremost thing that is important is to make sure that whatever the the threat actor is, whatever the leak is, that that hole is plugged as soon as possible. That is job number one. Sorry, what would that include? Like, do you unplug your computers? It could be any number of things. It could be unplugging your computers. It could be contacting forensic experts and, and helping out. It could be a system-wide reset, any number of things. It, it, or it could be something simpler. Maybe it was an old-fashioned pen and paper incident where somebody left something in their car and the file got stolen, which, by the way, is in a lot of industries, is getting closer and closer these days to a pink slip offense. It's no longer acceptable to say, well, my files got left in the car and someone broke into my car. 
But in those situations, you do what you can and it's relatively simple. It's not a situation where you've got somebody potentially looking at your computer in some faraway place and you have no idea what it is you can see. So really depends on the incident. So contain was the first thing. Then what's the next thing? So then the next thing that we get into is the assessment and that's understanding, okay, all the pieces, the vase is shattered. It's on the floor. All the pieces are there. How do we start to look at the damage that was done? How do we start to think about how we can repair that? And so that then gets into the third stage, which is the mitigation stage. So when you look at the obligations to report privacy breaches under Canadian law, the underlying rationale is what can we do to minimize the harm to people who have been affected by the incident? And so the mitigation step looks at things like, for example, and this is really becoming de rigueur, hey, we've had a situation, maybe some financial information has leaked out. We're going to offer you free credit monitoring for a year or two years, those sorts of things. Fourth step then is considering your notification requirements. And so, as I've mentioned a couple of times, under Canadian law, generally speaking, regardless of the sector that you're in, you're going to have an obligation to report data security incidents or privacy breaches that cross a certain threshold. So the legal term is real risk of significant harm. And it is what you would think something beyond a trivial breach. And so if you've crossed that threshold and you've made that determination, then you have a legal obligation to report to the affected individuals and typically a privacy regulator as soon as feasible. And what that means is elastic, but that's a fourth and important step in the process. But you can see how there's moving back and forth between all of those things. And Andra, is that regardless of size of business and whether you're private or public? Absolutely. And so from the private perspective, and when I mean private, I mean people who aren't government and government agencies. The same rules apply, but I think it's recognized that the obligation is not to be a guarantor of privacy. People recognize that sometimes these things happen and privacy laws don't demand perfection. But what they do demand is that you take reasonable measures. And so the size of the business, the size of the resources, the sensitivity of the information the business is holding would all inform what constitutes, quote unquote, reasonable security measures. So how would businesses know this? Would they contact someone like yourself or our audience and all our listeners right now are going, wow, like I didn't know that this was actually my responsibility to disclose. And I'm assuming to the people that are affected and also any stakeholders outside of that, where do they go to find this information? How do they get help? So there's a number of sources. You've got number one, your information technology professionals who can speak to what's quote unquote market in terms of data security protection. The nuts and bolts of what you need to do, encryption, firewalls, data backup, where your data is located, if it's in the cloud, whether it's separated from other data, all of those sorts of things, the highly technical stuff. And the reason why that's important is because if you come to me or any other lawyer, we're going to tell you, well, you need to do what's reasonable and what's reasonable will depend on the industry that you're in. And so while we can certainly guide as to best practices, It's the on the ground people who are also a critical piece. And then a third person, aside from the information security professionals, aside from the legal advice, would be the privacy regulators themselves. So if you go to the office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, for example, who would be the privacy police under private sector privacy laws, 
they have a whole host of information and guidance for businesses that will help understand, number one, what are we expected to do proactively to put measures in place? But then number two, in the event that an incident happens, what are our particular obligations? And for the listeners, I would highlight in particular, those of us who remember Ashley Madison, I'm not making judgments. If you were a user of Ashley Madison, I mention it only because they had a significant data security event. And so the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada investigated and the report that they released really helped provide a walkthrough in terms of these are the measures that the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada expects in terms of taking measures to protect privacy and data security. So I would commend that report. It's written in plain language to anyone who's interested to see, well, what am I expected to do and and how do the steps that I've taken actually measure up? Well, that's great information. And what we'll do is we'll include a link to that report in our show notes so that our listeners can access that easily. So we've talked about this incidents report or plan. What about response time? Is that part of the protocol? Is there an obligation we have to respond within a certain period of time? And then should companies be rehearsing and doing drills to practice just so that when an incident does happen, that It's not as scary once you've actually gone through the steps of pretending that it's happened. So I think from my perspective, what I would say is the response time, if you look again under Canada's privacy law, the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, or PIPEDA, that will tell you that you need to report as soon as feasible. And that term, as you might expect, is somewhat elastic because what's feasible really depends on the situation. And so This would be one of those situations where, unfortunately, the answer from the lawyer is going to be, well, it depends. Now, that said, the balance and the tipping point in my mind is always what we know about the incident in the first couple of days is invariably going to be different than what we find out in the days to come. And I think typically there's a tendency to assume the worst as we should. And so you might think that the amount of information that's exposed is much greater than what the forensics finally reveal. And that doesn't mean that you get to wait until months later or or weeks later or what have you, your forensic experts have, have weighed in. But what it does mean is you're entitled to at least have a little bit of opportunity to look at things and try and suss out what happened. Because the last thing you want to do is send out an alarmist notice that causes more harm because it doesn't really include anything that's been said on a reasoned basis or that's helpful for people. And so the question always is, how far do we have to go? And that's one of those things that you know when you see, and it's really difficult to say, well, you need to report within 24 hours, 48 hours, et cetera. The last piece I would say on the timing aspect is the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, and and quite rightly, expects that you will update your reporting as necessary. And so if you look at some of the higher profile security incidents, you'll see when you go to their website pages that they dedicate to providing notifications, that they're frequently updated as more information rolls in. That's great information. Thank you. So we've got this incident response plan. And clearly, you know, companies of all sizes really do need to make sure that they are getting the right advice from their technology providers as well, whether it's in-house and maybe bring someone in from outside to take an external look to make sure you're protected, storing things, having proper backups offsite, changing passwords, all of those policies, that all falls more under an IT area rather than a legal area. Makes your job easier when 
people know what their systems are and where they're stored and having it recorded and everything. Any more on that front? Because I, I would love to move and talk a bit about ransomware. Yes. I, I think the, the last thing I would say and to go back to your second part of your question is absolutely you should practice your incident response plan. That is essential. It is not a document that sits in a drawer and collects dust. You should be doing tabletop exercises. It should be a living tree and it should be updated as needed in order to meet whatever threats you might be meeting on a particular day. And the one thing, again, and just came to me when you were talking there, you know, so many of our listeners, they may have their own businesses, but they may also sit on boards, whether it's volunteer or otherwise, where they need to know certain things in order to have oversight of the organization. And my understanding is that now even board members are really potential victims when they're associated with an organization and that attackers will try and penetrate you know, the systems, whether it's through email or phishing or what have you. So keeping your board members and external stakeholders included in your planning would be very important and also in the preparation and practice and making sure everyone's on the same page. Absolutely. And if you're a board member out there and you're, you're feeling unease, a little bit of unease is good. That means you're on your toes and you're aware of the problems. The last thing you want is an unknown unknown. At least if it's a known unknown, you understand that there's an issue out there. There is a raft of guidance for board members. Organizations like the Canadian Securities Administrators, or CSA, who provide guidance and rules that apply to publicly traded companies, have released data security and, and cybersecurity standards and guidance for boards. IROC, IIROC, the investment regulator, also has done that. There's some great resources there as well. And the third one that, that I often look to is the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, which is the federal banking and insurance regulator. So those three sources, if you're a board member and you're looking for information that, again, is, is relatively digestible, all great places to look for information. That's great. So we'll include those links as well, because, you know, the more we learn and understand, then it helps us know what questions we should be asking as well, which is another important point. If we don't ask the question, don't expect that you're going to be able to get the answers elsewhere. So ransomware. You hear more and more about this and, you know, attacks apparently are expected to increase 100% in 2022. So what are the must-haves for being prepared for when it happens? Because as we said in the beginning, it's not really if, it's when. The most important thing that you can do to protect your business from a ransomware attack, separate and apart from the security measures we've been speaking about, is to take away some of the leverage that the attackers have. And what I mean by that is, your computer system gets shut down. You have no access to any of your information. Your business cannot operate. What you do not want is to be brought to your knees by a situation like that because you don't have backups. And so one of the best measures to inoculate yourself against the effect of ransomware is to have a data backup and a disaster recovery system ready so that you can flip the switch and immediately bring back whatever it was with hopefully minimal losses. And that is so important because then when you're dealing with the ransomware people, it is more about what can we do to try to mitigate harm in terms of do we think that they'll be likely to not publish information to cause us reputational damage? 
those sorts of things. I think we can all appreciate there's no honor among thieves, but the fact is there are reasons to speak to ransomware people separate apart from getting your business back online. But at least in that circumstance, you're up and you're rolling and you're not negotiating from a position of, we can't restart our business until we pay these people. So having that data backup plan in place is the best thing you can do because there's no guarantee that if you pay the ransomware, you're going to get your data back. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you talk to different security experts, different lawyers, you'll get different answers about, should we pay ransomware? So remove that from the calculus. That's the best thing that you can do as an initial step. And what about working with legal counsel? And, you know, when do we bring them in? And when something happens, are we obligated to share it? How much of it can be kept private? Where do you come in? So that's a great question and something that gets into one of those more technical areas of the law that a lot of us lawyers included don't sometimes don't turn our minds to. And that's the concept of what we call legal privilege. And so taking a step back, if you have litigation or court proceedings, there are rules that allow both sides to see information relevant to the proceeding that the other side has under their possession or control. So we would call that production and and discovery obligations. And so your obligation, if you're a party to litigation, is to hand over everything you have that's relevant to the lawsuit, subject to exceptions. And one of those exceptions is what we call legal privilege. So legal privilege allows you to refuse to turn over certain documents, data, legal advice you've received, et cetera. And so why that's important is when you start picking up the pieces, when you have the initial emails where people are pausing, oh my goodness, what's gone wrong? How many people are affected? And you start hiring the external experts to come in. You want that information to be protected by privilege. And how do you do that? You do that by ensuring that the first phone call has been to your lawyer so that your lawyer then engages and deals with those people on your behalf for the purpose of allowing the lawyer to give you informed legal advice about your obligations. And that is the textbook example of what we call solicitor-client or lawyer-client privilege. And so if you're a business A, you have an incident, you hire a forensic firm, They audit your systems. They tell you what happened. That report could be produced to someone who wishes to sue you because of the incident that you've just experienced. Whereas if you call your lawyer, your lawyer obtains that report, then that report is more likely to be subject to privilege. So call your lawyer. The other person you should call immediately is your insurer. Why? Because if you have insurance coverage for cyber coverage, they may have a whole suite of systems to help you out, including turnkey service where you're connected with a breach coach who's a lawyer and immediately gives you white glove service, contacts all the experts on your behalf. Can you imagine at 11 at night, you've got this incident, you need to call an IT firm. Who do you know? Who are you going to call? And chances are you wouldn't know who to call. And so having that 24-hour report line is very helpful. And also because one of the cardinal rules of an insurance policy is thou shall not compromise coverage. And so letting the insurer know early and often that you've, you've got a potential claim is just a very wise thing to do. So pick up the phone, call your insurer, call your lawyer. Very good first steps. And do you have to have specific insurance to cover this type of situation? So it really depends on the type of insurance that you have, but I would say as a general rule, while there can be some overlap in coverage, your commercial general liability coverage, your directors and officers coverage, 
your errors and emissions or E&O coverage. A lot of the things that we're talking about, the regulatory costs, the notification costs, sometimes business interruption costs, when they're arising in this context, you're going to want to have a specific cyber policy that's going to cover that. And so if you have any sort of presence that involves electronic and usage of data and things that hackers could get at, then cyber insurance is a very good thing to look at. Appreciating that cyber insurance premiums are the costs are going up because of claims history. People ask me, should I have cyber insurance? How much should I have? And the answer is always more than you have right now. That's a different answer than it depends. Yeah. It's good. Well, sometimes we can be definitive. So are there specific questions that we should be asking our insurance provider when it comes to cybersecurity? Absolutely. And your broker is your best friend here. It is critical that you are working with a broker who understands and has experience with cyber insurance policies. And not all brokers do, especially because it's a relatively new, comparatively speaking, product. And so don't be afraid to ask your broker their experience, their comfort level with cyber insurance. So I would say that's an important first step. But then in terms of some of the things that I would look for, things like what triggers coverage, because different policies have different triggers. And is it that someone actually made use of data? Is it simply that data was accessed? Do you have to prove that someone made use of it? Geographic scope, does this cover claims in Canada? What are our deductibles and our retention amounts? And when do they kick in? How high are they? Do we have to pay from dollar one? Do we get what we've paid back once the insurance responds? How does it apply to work that we do in the cloud? More and more people are moving to the cloud. Are there limitations that we need to know there? And what's our our coverage, if any, for third-party business expenses, lost profits? So whole host of things. And again, your broker is your best friend because they can help you identify and really shop for a policy that's going to be suitable for your needs. Understanding that some businesses are going to have heightened needs that other businesses might not. And so if you don't need the Cadillac for your business, then then you can save some money and, and pay less in premiums versus if this is the type of business you operate that has very sensitive information, you want to make sure you're covered the best way that you can be and in a way that's ultimately cost efficient for you. Wow. This is just fantastic information. And running a business is hard enough as it is. And there's always something that is pulling us into keeping up with changing times. And unfortunately, the things that we can't control are the things that can bite us hardest. And so being prepared in advance is really important. We've covered a lot here. We talked a bit about the types of breaches, maybe through emails and phishing. Do you want to get into any detail on that? Absolutely. So one area of, I would say, low-hanging fruit is staff and representative awareness. And lots of incidents, and it depends on the study, but some studies will tell you it's, it's a majority of them, arise from internal incidents that don't involve any malicious intent from staff. It's the emails that people click on. It's the software that people download that isn't whitelisted. It's not pre-vetted by your company. That's a significant area of concern. And we all think, oh, well, I'm not going to click on that. I know what I'm doing here. But sometimes these things can be quite sophisticated. 
I personally had an experience where there was a business professional who I deal with all the time. And they sent me an email and it said, hey, here's the report you asked about. I thought to myself, why? I don't really think that, that I've asked for a report, but it's this person's name. It appears to be their email address. There's their logo. It seems legit. So email them back. Hey, you know, not really sure what this is about. Can you let me know? And then get an email back that says, oh yeah, this is legit. Open it up. So sent it to our IT department and sure enough, it was spam. But it's not always the Nigerian Prince emails that you need to be worried about. They're getting more and more sophisticated. And so really being cautious is a solid plan. The other thing I would say too is, unfortunately, threat actors have made hay during COVID and and people working from home, people being isolated, people being anxious. And I think people have recognized that in those situations, sometimes maybe our judgment isn't what it normally is because it's a stressful period of time for us. And so that's another area that you really need to be careful of is do we have employees who are experiencing stress or going through difficult times? And so that's where training is again, very important because it helps raise the flag and equip people with the knowledge that they need and to know that if we don't recognize not just the sender, but the reason why someone's sending us email, we really shouldn't be opening that email. And many of the incidents I've dealt with have been just because of that. Someone opened an attachment, downloaded malware onto their computer, and they were off to the races, the hackers were. so. Well, and even just coincidentally today, I heard of an incident where somebody hijacked someone's email address, sent it through, and they were expecting, they did actually owe somebody some money for some services that they had provided and said, I've changed banks, you know, send the money here. Thankfully, they caught it. And another incident where somebody penetrated a membership group and hijacked somebody's identification and lived as if they were that person for more than six months and actually having conversations and then took advantage. And there was a big breach that came in behind it. So you just never know. And if I could, two other tips that come to mind as you're talking. One is the concept of credential stuffing is what it's called. And what it means is if hackers get access to a password, they'll then try to use that password in other platforms. If they know this person has this email and they use this password, let's see where else it might work. And so that's one area where it's important to not use the same password for every account. I know that I can't remember my passwords and typically have to reset them. But the point is, it's probably a better practice than just using the same password everywhere. The second thing I would say is when you do get those emails that just don't seem right, pick up the phone. I am enjoying talking to you, Polly, but let's face it, sometimes I don't want to talk to people. And so it's easier to just send emails. But when things are a little bit suspicious, why not pick up the phone and talk to someone? And that gets into the concept of what we call two-factor authentication, where you know that you've got one way of communicating with someone, email, use the second way to do it. And so if you're logging on to a network to use another example of two-factor authentication, that would be the network send something to my device. So it's not just me sitting at my computer or anyone else who's compromised my password, but they also then need to be able to respond to a message to my phone And you'll see that all the time now, text message confirmation codes. That's a very important tool that more and more companies are using as well. One that is interesting that actually happened to me last week personally is I got an email from Amazon saying that they needed to change something and they put the actual 800 number of Amazon, but then they put a link that wasn't to Amazon. 
And it's always easier to click on the link, but I phoned the number first and verified that it was Amazon. So some people might've gone, oh, it is Amazon. I'm not going to wait on hold. I'll just click on the link now. So very smart, but I did wait, spoke with somebody and they said, no, it's not legitimate. Do not respond. We do not send emails in that fashion. So you just never know. It's like the messages I get from banks sometimes where they say, well, was this you who made this charge? I'm terrified anytime my bank contacts me because I immediately assume it's someone who's not my bank. And oftentimes it actually is legit. So it can be tough. Yeah. So Andrew, can you share any stories with us about situations that you've actually been in where you have experience helping somebody through an event? Sure. I I think one example that I could think of that comes to mind, and it underscores the need to have good information hygiene practices, was a situation where a professional services company, and it really actually covers a lot of the things we've been talking about. They had a staff member who was uh, subject to a data security incident. Someone had been emailed something. They clicked on the email. Malware was downloaded. Computer system was shut down. And so I was contacted and we worked with them to work with forensic uh, IT folks to understand the nature of the incident. There was ransomware. The ransomware was paid. The information was brought back. But in the meantime, the business needed to be up and running sooner than that. And so it was necessary to do what we could to try to back up their data, which was difficult because there wasn't a regular retention process. But then moving forward, it was quickly identified that, hey, we think that there's going to be an obligation to report here to the privacy commissioner and the affected individuals. The problem is we've had so much data on our system and it's gone back for so long that we won't be able to do individual notifications because that would be tens of thousands of letters. So we had to take an ad out in the newspaper. We had to create a dedicated website. And in the end, the company was able to meet its notification obligations. The privacy commissioner's office closed its file and onwards they went. It could have been a lot worse though, because can you imagine if your phone starts ringing, what are you going to do? You'll you'll have to hire a call center. You'll have to get involved in a mass mailing campaign. And so to me, that really underscored the importance of let's try to containerize and limit the amount of data we have on the system, because the more data we have there, the more we're going to have to contact people and deal with the ramifications of that if there's an incident. Well, really good example. And I think that in itself is giving us the learning that we need to be proactive and put our our systems and processes in place and then practice them. So we don't find ourselves on the back end and actually dealing with you. Not that I don't want to deal with you, but in the right context, upfront. So Andrew, is there anything that we haven't covered today that you want to touch on? Because we did cover a lot and I think we're going to have to come back on another day because we could go on and on. I think probably we've done a pretty good high level scope. Look at this. We've talked about things proactively. We've talked about things reactively. Just the last thing that I would say is, A lot of problems that I have seen have been encountered because people were collecting more information than they needed and hanging on to it for too long. And so it used to be that you would have a file room and when the file room got full, it was time to do a purge. Data is cheap. It's easy to store data. The problem is when you have an incident and you've got customer records back to 1985 on your computer system, which I've seen, 
it makes privacy breach reporting a nightmare. So be cognizant of the fact that we should always be collecting no more information than we need. And we should have a retention schedule. So that way, when we no longer need the information, it gets purged from our system. So Andrew, that is the perfect way to wrap this discussion. We've learned so much. And again, we'll include all the links and references that you've made in the show notes. And to you, our audience, you know, rather than being an afterthought, we all know that cybersecurity needs to be baked in at all levels of our business. And regardless, you don't have to be the owner. Any employee training, understanding, you know, that awareness training and guidance and forethought is going to help us in the long run. Our audience will be much better off knowing what they know now. So thank you for being with us. And Andrew, thank you for a really great conversation. Fantastic. Thank you, Polly. Please note that the conversation in this podcast is for informational and learning purposes and does not constitute legal, financial, or business advice. The Ask of Expert podcast is a production of Exit and distributed globally by the Sound Off Media Company. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.